Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. On today's show, if you missed it, uh, a lot of talk about a couple of speeches, one by Justin Trudeau and one by Sarah Palin. We got a lot of reaction to. And we've also been following this story about a weird star that's dimming off in the distance and maybe there's a alien superstructure out there or something. Anyway, a fascinating conversation with, uh, with a couple of astronomers who know better than we do. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Roger Kincaid. He's Rob Breckenridge. Two Alberta boys live in the Alberta dream. Bring the dream, bring it. Anytime, Alberta. Anytime. We are watching a sea of red numbers, ironically draped across the uh, uh, business news channels, as our fearless leader, Justin Trudeau, is addressing the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and uh, trying to bring with him a message of confidence that, that Canada is a confident economy for people to invest in. Exactly. <laughs> Why everyone agrees with that message today. Maybe that's why you see the, the, your uh, stock traders and accountants using only the red pen and not even venturing near the black inkwell today. We'll, we're uh, following the story as it develops, and we might uh, bring you more. Uh, and we've got quite a program for you today, too. I mean, listen, the, sometimes the news is bleak. The economic news is a bit bleak today. Uh, but we're still going to talk about some other stuff. Um, most notably, well, I don't know. I don't want to downplay <laughs> the big important stuff. And I've got a, I've got a rant about Justin Trudeau's speech all uh, in the chamber ready to go here. But at 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about the refugee situation and the fact that the liberal government is basically splitting refugees into two tiers. They're saying, well, some of them will have to pay in full and, and some of them will, will, will float their boat. We'll pay their way for them. Um, so the sort of question is, well, hang on a second. What's with the two tiered system and what was wrong with the old way of doing things? It doesn't seem terribly unreasonable to most Canadians that a $10,000 repayable loan uh you know is is pretty reasonable accommodation for people who are being rescued from their war torn country if people might remember back in october we did a story about this mysterious star that's become known as tabby's star nicknamed by one of the astronomers who who uh, noticed this uh, and there was something very odd about it because you know we can detect when planets are going around a star because it will dim slightly uh but even a massive massive planet would only cause about a 1% dip in a star's brightness. There's something around this particular star that's causing up to a 20% dip in brightness, and it really seems to fluctuate. And nobody could quite seem to figure out what was going on. It led to some interesting speculation about alien megastructures, etc. And then you had some people say, calm down, people, this is probably just a bunch of comets, like a, a huge family of comets zipping by this star, and that's probably what it is. Well, some new research has come out on this star, and, well, it's ruled out the comet hypothesis, so I don't know where that leaves us. Uh, I guess back to, to more fascinating sci-fi speculation, but we're going to revisit that story later on. Uh, Jason Wright's an astronomer at Penn State University, and uh, he's been studying this, and we'll get his thoughts on what we know and what we don't know about this star, and it seems to be a lot more uh, of the latter. You're going to hear the word diversity a lot in the next half hour, um, and a very shameful use of the word diversity by our Prime Minister. Uh, but I, but there is an actual there's this other story about diversity that's actually one that, that's kind of important and it's a conversation worth having. We're talking about the diversity or lack thereof in the Oscar selections this year. The Oscar committee is uh, 93% male, 70 sorry what is it 90, 93% white, 76% male. And there's some people that uh, say, hey, if you guys are going to be picking the best cinema 
and awarding uh, the, the cinema, cinematic highlights of the year. Maybe we need a bit more diversity on that panel. So Michael Phillips, who's a film critic from the Chicago Tribune, is going to join us at 1130 to have this conversation. Yeah, you know, and the thing is, too, I mean, I, I think it's easy to blame the Oscars. Uh, and maybe that lets Hollywood off the hook. I mean, uh, George Clooney, for example, was uh, speaking about this and uh, talked about how there needs to be more diversity. But uh, a lot of people pointing out that, well, hey, George Clooney, in your new movie, there's precisely zero black actors. So maybe it would be easier for the Oscars to nominate black performers and black directors if Hollywood were giving them those opportunities in the first place. So maybe that's where the problem lies. We'll talk about that coming up later on. All right. I'm the agitated kid just waiting for the recess bell to ring. Can we ring it? Can I get off this? Like (laughs) Rob was sitting beside me while Justin Trudeau was doing his speech, and I was yelling at the computer in the same way that a hardcore football fan yells at the TV when his team is losing or drops the football. Well, the question I'm pondering is which speech was more vapid, uh, Justin Trudeau's or Sarah Palin's <laughs> you, from yesterday? You know, in so doing, we you, have that coming up. You've incidentally elevated Leonardo DiCaprio to like out of this, out of the status of those two. Well, you know, say what you will about Leo, he doesn't come across as as vapid. At least he's saying something. We can disagree with it and. And I think he's, you know, making making stuff up in a lot of cases. But uh, well, let me get I know this is a clip you want to hear. I got three clips of Justin Trudeau here speaking this morning in Davos at the World Economic Forum. But I pulled this one and this is just a minute of Trudeau. And this just sets the tone for the speech because it's in that syrupy, condescending tone of his. And he's really not saying anything of substance. So, so here's a, a sampling of what folks at the World Economic Forum got this morning. I believe in positive, ambitious leadership. I don't believe leaders should prey on the anxiety of the disenfranchised. Leadership should be focused on extending the ladder of opportunity to everyone, on pursuing policies that create growth, and on ensuring that growth produces tangible results for everyone. Positive leadership creates a virtuous cycle. The more results we achieve for people, the more we grow the middle class and create real chances for those working hard to join the middle class, the more people will grant you a license for further ambition. We need to trust citizens. We need to give people the tools and ability to help them succeed. The fourth industrial revolution will not be successful unless it creates real opportunities for the billions who weren't able to join us here this week. Okay. The billions. Do they have a venue that size in Davos? <laughs> they do, and it's and it's sitting empty, and it's it's a terrible tragedy. <laughs> they got all that public funding. <laughs> okay, well, diversity is is a, a theme that, uh, that that Trudeau hit on many many times this morning. Now it's interesting because I mean, uh, you could look at his cabinet or his caucus. I don't know. Is it is it as diverse as as um, he touts everything else uh, in Canada, or as diverse as he thinks uh, that things need to be? But this is this is where he gets into some some more specifics and makes some specific suggestions and allegations, we might even say, about what works and what doesn't and what's uh, enabling certain industries or certain uh, organizations and what's holding others back. And he points to diversity. So let's let's hear this, because here he is talking about Silicon Valley and talking about the University of Waterloo and the, 
Is the this, secret sauce. This is gonna wait. Just just so you know, this I will lose my. Go ahead and play it. Just look at Silicon Valley. It crackles with ideas and experimentation. Diversity is a major reason for Silicon Valley's creativity. Its engineers and entrepreneurs come from all over the world. Each brings a different perspective. And when those diverse ways of seeing and thinking come together, they spark creativity. Diversity fosters new ideas. New ideas generate the experimentation needed to make the most of the fourth industrial revolution. And diversity is something leaders can do much about. Recently, a New York Times reporter asked the president of Y Combinator, a major Silicon Valley startup funder, if any one school stood out as a source of graduates with sparkling new ideas. He said, there's one. It's the University of Waterloo, Canada's University of Waterloo. Why does a Silicon Valley entrepreneur look to Waterloo as a great source for brilliant minds and brilliant ideas? Well, it has high intellectual standards, of course, and it values entrepreneurship. But diversity is its indispensable ingredient. Waterloo's students come from everywhere. Fully half of the graduate engineering students are international. And the University of Waterloo's domestic students are drawn from Canada's student population, one of the most diverse in the world. Okay. There you go. Okay, so listen, Y Combinator, it's... You can't be expected to know much about Y Combinator, but if you're going to stand up at the World Economic Forum and deliver a speech, and you're going to reference Y Combinator, you should know what the hell you're talking about. And it's patently obvious to anybody who's ever heard of Y Combinator and know what they are that Justin Trudeau hasn't got a bloody clue to a dangerous degree. Now, Y Combinator is what we would call an incubator space. And what Y Combinator does is they, they, they run a contest basically that says, look, if you want to be part of Y Combinator, we will uh, incubate your startup and we'll, we'll give you exposure to all the tools and all the resources that we have available to us in San Francisco, which is the Silicon Valley, essentially, right? And so they're basically saying at Y Combinator that we will run this contest and we will drop a small amount of money, 120 grand, into a bunch of companies. And if you know anything about Y Combinator, because you've been in the culture of it, they have this thing called ramen budget, which is a way of saying... If you want your company to succeed, you'd better be willing to eat ramen noodles three times a day until you get there because that's what it takes. Y Combinator is not a funder of startups. The Silicon Valley is a funder of startups. What Y Combinator does is get startups in an incubation space and allows them to whip themselves into shape so that they can go down the street to the billionaires and say, would you mind funding my Uber, my Airbnb, my Looped, my Lyft, all of these startups that come out of Y Combinator. But the other thing Y Combinator knows is that about 90% of startups fail. And that's not something that Canada is okay with. Rant continues. Justin Trudeau highlights the University of Waterloo as a place that Y Combinator says, hey, that's a great university, but never mentions the secret sauce that University has of Waterloo has, which is, say it with me, research in motion slash BlackBerry. 
Because if it was just about diversity, then the president of Y Combinator would have said, oh, McGill, that's one of Canada's most diverse institutions. Or he might have said, oh, UBC, because that, too, is one of Canada's most diverse institutions. In fact, I would argue that the most ethnically, culturally diverse post-secondary education institution in Canada is the University of Toronto. So Justin Trudeau wants to stand up in front of the World Economic Forum and say, hey, it's all about diversity, and he's going to reference the president of Y Combinator, one of the most famous startup incubators, notorious startup incubators in the world, then he'd better have the permission of that guy. Because I'll tell you, I I would bet my entire portfolio, which is significantly devalued this morning because of what's going on in the stock market, that the president of Y Combinator would tell you that diversity is incidental. And that all the people that come to Y Combinator, particularly from the University of Waterloo, they might be diverse, optically speaking or culturally speaking. But the one place where they completely lack diversity, where there is almost a total uniformity, is the fact that they are brilliant, innovative minds. And they are all the same in that respect. That's kind of like looking at a basketball team with five people of all different ethnicities and saying, hey, isn't diversity great? But the reason that they're on that team is because they can all play the game above the rim. That's what's going on in the Silicon Valley. And Justin Trudeau would would do himself and this entire nation a tremendous favor if he would recognize that diversity is incidental and that the strength of the University of Waterloo lies in its investment and its innovation, not in what the student body looks like. Right. No, well said. It's a laudable goal. It's nice to have. But to portray it this way is to portray it as the reason why that particular institution is thriving is, is as you say, disingenuous. I, I thought this was a little disingenuous, too. Here's uh, Justin Trudeau taking a couple of veiled shots at his predecessor, or not so veiled, really. And, and it's it's odd, the, the contrast here, because he's talking about how diverse Canada is, how wonderful Canada is. All of that, of course, happened under Stephen Harper's watch. So at the same time that Stephen Harper was destroying Canada, I guess uh, still in pretty good shape. <laughs> Frankly, our recent election reminded us all that people can respond to a positive, inclusive vision of society. The result is creativity that enriches Canada and the world. We know this. Frankly, that makes me profoundly optimistic and confident. My predecessor wanted you to know Canada for its resources. Well, I want you to know Canadians for our resourcefulness. I'd bet that almost all of you have Canadians in leadership positions in your company. Now, you might not know this because we don't often shout it from the rooftops. Some cliches about Canadians are true. But in fact, when you think about it, I know that at least half this room has employed Dominic Barton at one point or another. We have a diverse and outstandingly creative population, a great education and advanced infrastructure. We have social stability, financial stability, and a government willing to invest in the future. You know, you can just hear him thinking about that. This Dominic Barton joke's going to kill. <laughs> 
When you're in Davos, nothing beats a good Dominic Barton joke. Oh, People love best. that stuff. They yeah. gobble it up. But you can just see the, you know, the smugness. And he says, you know, my predecessor wanted Canada to be known for its resources. I want Canada to be known for its resourcefulness. See, it's like a play on words. And oh my goodness, aren't I clever? <laughs> we got to take a break. I'm going to hunch over, put my hands on my knees, and wait for the next, next shift to start because this Trudeau speech is terrifying and embarrassing, in my opinion, all at the same time. We'll be right back. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. before the top of the hour. We'll get into another uh, curious speech, uh, this one from yesterday. We'll talk about that coming up after 10 o'clock and uh, politics south of the border. But uh, some thoughts on Justin Trudeau's speech this morning at the World Economic Forum. By the way, there, there was another clip we didn't pull, and, and maybe we should have because we talked about it yesterday. Uh, Trudeau does this speech, and then he sits down with uh, Farid Zakaria from CNN. Yeah. And it's a, a bit of a Q&A. And, and at one point, uh, Fareed Zakaria asks Justin Trudeau about the ISIS mission. And Justin Trudeau talks about how he's taking the planes home. Uh, and, and Zakaria says, well, what's the logic for that? And again, we get this vapid answer from Trudeau that, well, you know, we're going to be productive in other ways, other military strategies. And, and Zakaria tries to get him to explain what, what that is. And he's just he's completely unable to. So here he is on the world stage at a time when uh, obviously our allies are uh, a little troubled by uh, just how, how vague this government is and how non-committed and confusing this policy is. And he still can't articulate a reason, can't articulate a reason for why the mission needs to change, can't explain what the new mission is going to look like, can't explain what this new strategy is going to be that we're now ostensibly committed to. Um, so it, it is a little embarrassing. I, I hate to say it, but but it is. Uh, some of the texts coming in, uh, a lot of texts coming in. People appreciated uh, your rant, Roger. Uh, this one here says, oh, where'd it go now? It vanished <laughs> on me. There was a real nice one I was going to read. Look, there's, let's focus on the bad one, though. I mean, somebody just texted to say, Roger, you've just shown you're such a staunch conservative that you can't listen to anything a liberal says without complaining. Our prime minister is promoting Canada to billionaires by promoting our welcoming non-racist society. He's generating investment that isn't oil, which in this day and age only makes sense. I'm like, okay, that comment from this texture is so detached from reality. It's, it's terrifying. And this is why I said that Justin Trudeau's, uh, lack of enlightenment on these matters is dangerous and terrifying. Billionaires don't consider the racist climate of places that they invest in. No. Okay. Like just consider the countries in the world where some of the biggest American corporations are happy to do business. And by the way, Canada is pretty happy to do business in Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not going to call that racism because I know that how that uh, derails the conversation, but it's quite obvious that money is happy to be grown in places where, well, white people aren't really nice to brown people and vice versa. What Justin Trudeau did today was say um, Canada values things that, that money doesn't value. Cash only cares about return on capital. And when you're an investor, and I mean a credible investor, and you're looking for wins on the market or wins in your investments, you don't look at the skin color of the people that make up the company. You look at the smarts and the profitability behind the people that make up that company. Yeah, sure. And what's happening in Kitchener-Waterloo is exciting. What's happening at the University of Waterloo is exciting. Yes. And, uh, I mean, in, in a lot of respects, you got the, uh, the the tech mines that are coming out of there. you got the Perimeter Institute, uh, the world-renowned physics in institution there. And it's great. And if you want to sell Canada's intellectual capital, 
certainly that that is a selling point, and and it's understandable that uh, that a prime minister would want to tout that. Uh, but that's separate from the question of our, our values and our diversity and our lack of racism and all of these things that Trudeau's talking up. Uh, that's not a message to be sent to investors. It's certainly a message that, uh, that that maybe the world needs to hear from time to time. I don't know that Trudeau did a good job of, of portraying it, mind you. Uh, but if the if the if the explanation here is that this is something investors need to hear. It just it, it doesn't add up. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, breaking news, by the way. Justin Trudeau has just been booked to give the keynote speech at the 26th annual Practical Short Course on Membrane and Other Separations Technologies and the Application of Food, da- Dairy, Beverage, and Bioprocessing. Apparently, they don't uh, need to have a keynote speaker. Who knows what the hell he's talking about either? <laughs> we'll be back after the news to 10 o'clock. That's nine seven four talk or text them at seven seventy seven seven. Roger Kincaid, Rob Breckenridge on News Talk seven seven Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. You know the thing that bothers me the most about the speech that Justin Trudeau gave Rob is that there are people uh, texting us to try to defend it, although they are few. But this one says, "I can't listen to your show anymore. Your blatant bias and condescending manner have become just too much." Now, hang on a second. Let's just stop for just a moment, take a quick breath. We'll exhale. Nothing was more condescending than Justin Trudeau's tone in that speech. I could try, but I don't think I could get there. And the other thing about it is, I, I don't know what this bias is. I definitely have a bias towards intelligent, thoughtful speeches being delivered by the leaders of countries, particularly the one I live in. But if you think that we're anti-liberal and pro-conservative, boy, have we got a half hour for you. Well, yeah, I mean, we have the same people texting us to say, you know, you, uh, you media people got your man, that you guys got the guy you wanted for. You guys were so against Stephen Harper in the election. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those it just it doesn't carry any water here, I don't think. Uh, if, if you want to defend the speech, then defend the speech on its merits. To, to suggest that, that criticism of a politician equals bias against that politician is, frankly, insulting. That's what this is about. This is about whether or not this speech is deserving of criticism. Frankly, Justin Trudeau probably employs a lot of speechwriters that probably make uh, a fair amount of money. Did they write this speech? I don't think he wrote this speech. No, he didn't. Right, which is what's odd about it, because I think it comes across as though he did, because it almost sounds like when he speaks. And we saw him on stage at the debates when he wasn't reading from a script. He comes across this way. So I, I think there is his tone and his mannerisms come through. But I don't think he wrote those words. And so in that sense, this was deliberate. This was the kind of thing they wanted to say at the World Economic Forum. And I'm not sure why. Maybe to distinguish himself from from his predecessor. Uh, maybe he feels as though, you know, it's going to impress people there when he talks about how diverse and caring and generous Canada is, etc. But again, this is the World Economic Forum. And for, for a guy who's there supposedly, supposedly to, to talk up Canada's economy, I didn't hear a lot of that. I heard a lot of flowery language about how great the Canadian people are, which is fine. Yeah, we are great. We're a wonderful people. We're a great country. Agree with that 100%. How is that selling investors on us, though? To the people who are, are calling from a position of, of defending Trudeau, defend Trudeau. Don't attack me or us for being biased or for being conservative or whatever. Defend your man. Make me see the light because because the, when when my vomit hit the floor was when he had no idea what Y Combinator is that he was describing. So let me give you an example. If I come on the radio and I say Star Wars is such a good movie about Captain James T. Kirk, 
who travels to Klingon, where he meets Spock, and together they uh, rescue the Princess Bride. You could attack that on its merits, because I would have no idea what I'm talking about. That wouldn't mean I'm a bad guy. Right. No, I think I think <laughs> bias, bias is not a willingness to criticize a politician. Bias is refusing to criticize a politician. And no politician is above criticism. And when our prime minister gets on the world stage and gives a speech like this, uh, I think it would be incredibly biased to simply let that pass. And to say, wow, what a, what a great speech from our prime minister. What a great guy. That's bias. Criticizing this, this prime minister is, is a lot of things, but it's not bias. That's also our job. Do you want, do you want to do these and then we'll do that? Cause then, cause that's more fun and, and these are kind of, what do you think? Or do you want to give a little um, taste of this? Give a taste of that. We'll do these phone calls. We do that. No, let's save it. Cause I'm, I'm really hoping that this is something we can all agree on. Obviously <laughs> people have, have different takes on, on, uh, you know, the criticism of Justin Trudeau's speech. But I would think that, that we can all agree that this next speech that we'll get to is out there. Okay. Let's think Way some, out there. Let's take some calls. Hi there, Debbie. Thanks for the phone call. Hi, Roger. How are you this morning? I think we're both good. Thanks. That's good. Um, I just wanted to call in. Didn't want to make your head any bigger as what Patrick was saying. Uh-huh. But I totally agree with you because we're on a world arena we're talking about something that the drama teacher should just go back to. Uh, I don't get why we're going to pull our planes out of there. That's possibly a good reason why we weren't invited to that uh, meeting. Yeah. They don't even know what the hell we're doing. Sorry, didn't mean to swear. Oh, that's but okay, they don't even know what the heck we're doing, and nor does he. Like, his wife bursts into song at Martin Luther King Day. Seriously, keep it to yourself. Oh, do you want to hear that, by the way? Okay. Oh, Th- hell no. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the call, Debbie. Really appreciate it. Uh, De- yeah, that was just weird. Debbie's right. Like, take Justin Trudeau's message to, 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 to use Justin Trudeau's speech today as strategy to get people to give you money for something. I would like to start a company making bicycles. Okay, why should we invest in your company? Well, we've got a really diverse workforce. <laughs> They're not going to break out the checkbooks. They're not going to break them out. I don't think so. Let's uh, get back to the phones here. Jim is up next. Jim, thanks for calling in. Well, hey, you guys are doing a great job, and especially with this uh, Sun and the Herald uh, going under a single flag for their reporting. It's nice to have something that you could have listen to and learn from, and you guys are doing a great job in that. Well, thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Was that it? I agree. <laughs> a lot of what Debbie said I agree with, so there's no point in echoing that. So oh, okay. Keep up the good work. Hey, thanks for listening, Jim. Really appreciate that. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. You know, maybe we need a way where, you know, when people call in in succession and they want to agree with, with either of the hosts, they could just say, you know, ditto. <laughs> and then, you and know. that's it? We just move on? We could just like rapid fire the calls Well, off. and then that way we could we could identify those people. Those are the, the ditto heads. <laughs> Something like that. Um, not to do this to you, but this is what uh, this is what Debbie was talking about. Some people doubt that angels can fly. So this is Justin Trudeau's wife, a, a well-to-do upper-class white woman in Canada, uh, breaking out into soulful song on Martin Luther. Where King was Jr. she, Day. by the way? Uh, she was at some some to-do. This is in Ottawa, yeah. you think, or okay? But it, it it gets better. But nothing will take away what's between you and me. When you smile, when you smile, when you smile, I love you. 
I like you as a person. Do not attempt to have a career in music. And the weird thing is Simon Cowell was actually at that event. <laughs> to say that to her. Uh, yeah, that seemed a bit harsh, but... Uh, <laughs> hmm. All right, let's take a few more calls. We'll take a break, and we'll do that. Yep. Let's do it. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for the phone call. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? We're good, thanks. Good. I just wanted to make a comment that it's very clear to me that uh, Mr. Trudeau has never struggled to uh, make ends meet, to put food on the table or to pay his mortgage. Or, and I, I mean, I've been there, done that, and, you know, I had to work uh, nights. So uh, and my wife worked during the day so that we would have enough to buy a house and be in a house and and not have to pay child care and all this foolishness and he's got two freaking nannies his wife doesn't yeah. work that's a joke he's totally insulated from the realities of the Absolutely. middle class that he that he tends to, that he tries to appeal to i mean there are a lot of people that are probably trying to climb their way through the liberal party ranks that actually know what middle class means but he's not one of them. He never has been one of them. That's the, that's the biggest problem about it, is that it's one thing to be like a self-made millionaire and to be talking about the middle class, but he was never one of them. I agree. It's, it's just it's very frustrating, annoying, and, and it's really, frankly, it's it's I don't even know the word. Yeah, I know, Jeff. You're like a lot of people are totally speechless on the matter. He did grow up in government housing, though, so there's that. Well, there's that. Like, I don't begrudge Trudeau for having uh, two nannies. I, I don't think the issue was that the hypocrisy of of how he so publicly rejected those those child care support payments, saying, you know, families like mine don't need uh, government help raising our kids. And and then to to accept the fact that these two nannies are going to be uh, on on the government payroll that that's the unfortunate part of it. But I mean, the the point about his wife. Look, he's the prime minister. She's the wife of the prime minister. It's it's not a normal life. Right? She's not a, a normal stay at home housewife. And I think there are expectations that the the wife or the spouse of a prime minister take on a public role. So again, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, it's just it's the hypocrisy that that bothers me. Hi, Norm. Thanks for the call. Yeah, Roger and uh, Rob, I just wanted to commend you on uh, your your uh, commentary about uh, Trudeau. I mean, the man is a national embarrassment. I, I don't think there's any question. And anybody that voted for this guy, if they didn't see through him before they ever voted for him, boy, I'll tell you, they had their head buried in the sand because this is what we're going to get for the next four years. Indecision and incompetence, plain and simple. All right, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I think that there's a lot of people, though, they're kind of like, you know when your hockey team trades for a goalie? And he has like six or seven bad nights, and you're like, oh, no, it's going to come together one of these days. <laughs> yeah. Like, send him down. Send him down. Hey, him, look, he's the prime minister. He won fair and square. They've the, got a majority government. The Roman Turk of prime ministers. <laughs> you know, he's got a lot of smart people around him. Uh, th- that's what baffles me about it. If Bill Morneau were on stage giving a speech, if Bill Morneau were sent in Trudeau's status, Trudeau said, look, I got to. You know, I'm sick. I can't make it. Uh, Bill, could you go and give a speech at the World Economic Forum? Bill Morneau would not have given that speech. Bill Morneau could probably talk with some credibility about the Canadian economy and reasons why investors should look at Canada as a destination. I, I, I don't know. I just I, that's what baffles me about it. It was very deliberate, a very deliberate tone and a very deliberate content in terms of what Justin Trudeau delivered and. I, I fail to understand why they thought that was how they should come across. All right, one more call, then we'll take a break. It's uh, Mark, who's called into News Talk 770. Hi, go ahead. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, just listening to your program, and uh, really wanted to thank you for, for posting some of that uh, uh, speech. I'd like to hear it in its entirety, so I don't want to uh, go after it too hard. But from being from southern Alberta, 
Um, we, we already know what's gone, in, what's gone on in Alberta and what's happening here. We don't want to get into that. And I'm still trying to find someone that uh, actually has, will admit that they voted NDP, but that's a sidebar. Uh, what, what I'm really concerned about is that uh, while he, he's going on with this uh, speech about reinventing us, I think Canada's always reinventing itself and having lived in the U.S. and sat on provincial boards and, and, and worked in community and worked with people. Justin seems like the kind of fellow that you go to the, to the meet and greets and he's got the wine uh, glass and the cheese and he's the nice guy and everybody likes him and he wants you to like him and everybody does like him. But that doesn't work on the world stage. And we're seeing it right now that our defense minister has not been invited to the G7 group uh, defense ministers to see how they're going to deal with the Middle East and the crisis is there of these bombings. And I think you should look at that real close on how the how the our, our allies are viewing us. And that's about all I have to say this morning. All right, good call, Mark. Thanks very much. Well, certainly we talked about it yesterday. I think that that is concerning. And and they should take the message that there needs to be some some clarity in our position. If we disagree with their allies, look, we're entitled to do that. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the government's position, but uh, they they need to articulate that. They need to be clear uh, about our intention and our commitment to this mission. All right, let's uh, take a pause here from uh, as some people are calling bashing a uh, progressive politician, and we'll, we'll 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 set our sights on one of the greatest conservative politicians of all time when we were. Turn. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> King Kate and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Hi, welcome back. It's King Kate and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Well, let's stop talking about one speech. Let's talk about another one. I, I, I'm old enough to remember, Roger, back in uh, 2008. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, a fellow by the name of John McCain uh, selected uh, the governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, as, as his running mate. And you know, who was this Sarah Palin? Seemed like a, a really uh, kind of outside-the-box choice, but she kind of came in with this reputation. Hey, here's a popular governor from, from Alaska. She's kind of a maverick politician in her own right. And we were watching her at the, uh, the the Republican convention, and she gave that first speech. And, and I thought at the time, I'm like, well, she came off pretty well. It was a pretty good speech. And then it all kind of fell apart from there. Well, yeah, and I mean, not to... Pardon me for saying, but none of that matters because you're right. I mean, it did start well. It was nice. And she was kind of like this uh, outlier choice, right? She was the governor of Alaska. She's a woman, maybe a petite frame, a bit of an unknown. And so there's all these sorts of reasons why it's interesting. And, you know, she didn't start with her foot in her mouth. And then things just got really, really weird. Well, now it's 2016. And so what are we to think when Sarah Palin enters the headlines again? Well, and she's still an, a, a figure of importance in the political scene in the U.S., which is, to me, very bizarre. What, what has she accomplished? I mean, she didn't stick around very long as governor of Alaska. Uh, she didn't fare too well as the running mate to John McCain. She looked pretty bad in, in, in those debates. And what has she done since then? You know, she's a talking head who uh, pops up on Fox News from time to time, goes around and, and gives some, some odd speeches. And she gave a really strange one yesterday. So this was a big deal, apparently, because she's endorsing Donald Trump, who is uh, still the, the Republican frontrunner. And, well, we've condensed it, okay? <laughs> it's about almost 20 minutes that she spoke for. It's really hard to believe that she managed to keep up this pace for, for 20 full minutes. But here's kind of a condensed version of Sarah Palin's really, really weird speech yesterday. just thawing out. Todd and I and a couple of our friends here from Alaska, uh, 
lending our support for the next president of our great United States of America, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> Mr. Trump, you're right. Look back there in the press box. Heads are spinning. Media heads are spinning. This is going to be so much fun. I was told, you know, warned left and right, you are going to get so clobbered in the press. You are just going to get beat up and chewed up and spit out. And, you know, I'm thinking, and? Yeah? You know what? You guys haven't tried to do that every day since that night in 08. When I was on stage nominated for VP, and I got to say, yeah, I'll go send me. You betcha. I'll serve. They are so busted the way that this thing works. We, you, a diverse, dynamic, needed support base that they would attack. And now, some of them even whispering, they're ready to throw in for Hillary over Trump because they can't afford to see the status quo go. Otherwise, they won't be able to be slurping off the gravy train that's been feeding them all these years. They don't want that to end. Wailing, well, Trump and his, uh, uh, his trumpeters, well, they're not conservative enough. Oh, my goodness gracious. What the heck would the establishment know about conservatism? How about the rest of us? Right-winging, bitter-clinging, proud-clingers of our guns, our God, our, and our religions, and our Constitution. Tell us that we're not red enough. Yeah, coming from the establishment, right. You know, they stomp on our neck, and then they tell us, just chill. Okay, just, yeah, just relax. Well, look, um, we are mad, and we've been had. They need to get used to it. This election is more than just your basic ABCs, anybody but Clinton. It's more than that this go-around. When we're talking about a nation without borders... When we're talking about uh, bankruptcies in our federal government, debt that our children and our grandchildren, they'll never be able to pay off. When we're talking about no more Reagan-esque power uh, that, that comes from strength, power through strength, well, then we're talking about our very existence. So, no, we're not going to chill. In fact, it's time to drill, baby, drill down and hold these folks accountable. And you quit putting the bill for these nations who are oil rich, we're paying for some of their skirmishes that have been going on for centuries, where they're fighting each other and yelling Allah Akbar, calling jihad on each other's heads forever and ever. Like I've said before, let them duke it out and let Allah sort it out. Yes, Barack, he built that. And that says a lot. Iowa, you say a lot. Being here tonight, supporting the right man who will allow you to make America great again. God bless you. God bless the United States of America and our next president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Ooh, that's quite the ride. Yeah. Now, uh, I'll say this. I, I would believe that she wrote that speech. Uh, yeah, if you okay, said to yeah. me, well, Sarah Palin wrote that speech, I'd say, okay, I, <laughs> I bet she probably did. Right, and for good, for more reasons than 
Okay, so, but your comment's not is not like a cynical uh, a jab at Sarah Palin. I mean, she's she is her own brand. You don't invite her to give you an endorsement and then ask her speechwriters to come in and, and and play that card for you. I mean, you get Sarah Palin on the podium because you want that brand endorsement behind you. Well, you, obviously, Donald Trump. I just there, don't understand why. There are a why. zillion more articulate conservatives in the United States. Uh, whether they be in government, former government, uh, columnists, policy wonks, think tank, whatever. You could compile a list of conservatives in the United States who can speak coherently about these issues. And Sarah Palin wouldn't even make the cut. So what makes her such an attractive figure? I mean, politically attractive. I don't know if, if maybe part of it is her looks. I don't know. It's just, to me, she comes across as one of these politicians who, almost in a way like Rob Ford, or maybe even like Trump himself, becomes defined by their enemies. If you're hated by the right people, uh, that can go a long way. Explain that. Well, I think Sarah Palin become, became that kind of figure. That Well, who hates Sarah Palin? All these, these elitists, all these people in the media, right. all these, these left-wingers, all these uh, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these people I've been trained to hate, they hate Sarah Palin. So the people I hate hate this other person. Well, then obviously, then I need to, to get behind that person. I'm going to support that person because we share enemies. You get this thing where, where I mean, D- Donald Trump doesn't need Sarah Palin's crowd. He's already got them. And if he doesn't have them all right now, they're, they're coming. So this doesn't help him in that respect. But what it does do is it, it, it gets all these people who aren't in the, in the race yet, who aren't paying attention, who aren't going to caucus in Iowa for him and all this blah, blah, blah. To see on The Daily Show tonight how Trevor Noah is making fun of this speech, Sarah Palin, and then Donald Trump can go on the on TV tomorrow and say, look, they ridiculed you. We had a great rally where we stood up for American values. We're trying to make America great again. And the, 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 the liberals, the progressives, they ridiculed you when they were ridiculing Sarah Palin. That speech was goofy and crazy. It was everything that <laughs> it was. It was a sideshow. Uh, this is my favorite part. Right-wing and bitter clinging, proud clingers of our guns, our God, our in our religions, in our constitution. Tell us that we're not red enough. Yeah, coming from the establishment, right? So, so he did it for he did it for this purpose, right? So that it would be broadcast all over American media, and commentators would be coming up and going, "Can you believe this woman is back in the news?" And Donald Trump can use that to say, "Look what happened. She came. She took part in democracy." And she's great. She's great. And then all these, they're terrible. These people, they're terrible. They're horrible. Vote for Trump. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very deliberate strategy. We'll see uh, whether or not it works. Uh, all right. Happy lunch hour. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We got a couple stories that we're watching for you. Uh, one was a, a pretty red day on the stock market. Uh, pretty bad south of the border. The TXS is a lot. Uh, TX, what am I trying to Toronto say? Toronto Stock Exchange. It's exactly what I was trying to say. Uh, off like more than 300 points as we speak. And we're going to try and touch base with uh, one of our buddies in the Popovich Carmelli Advisory Group uh, to see if we can make some sense of it and, and, and calm some nerves or, or tell people that they should be really legitimately nervous. But off the top in this hour, I want to revisit a story we, we told you about in October. It was getting a lot of attention, right? Because I, I think at, at one level, it's it's... You know, it's a fascinating story just about how we're able to to stare out into the cosmos and, and what we're able to determine about what's out there. You know, the fact that, for example, we're able to detect a lot of planets now that we couldn't once before. So this was a story about a particular star. And what astronomers noticed was uh, 
a very significant dimming of that star. So something we're, we're passing in front of that star. And that's one of the ways in which, we, for example, we can detect planets. But this dimming was far more significant than anything a planet could possibly accomplish. And there was no obvious explanation, which led to perhaps some thinking around, well, maybe this is perhaps if we are looking for evidence of an advanced alien civilization, maybe this is the kind of thing we'd be looking for, which got people really excited. Me included. Well, me too. Now, there were those who said, well, hang on, maybe it might just be comets. A lot of comets, a lot of really, really big comets, but nonetheless, maybe comets just flying in front of this star. Mystery solved. Well, the latest on this story now is that we got some new research we can draw upon, which doesn't get us any closer to an answer, but seems to rule out the comet hypothesis. And back to aliens with superstructures built around their planet. Well, let's hope so. Well, we got a couple of guests with us. Uh, we're going to get to Jason Wright, astronomer from Penn State University, who we spoke to in October. Uh, but let's also bring into the conversation. We got Bradley Schaefer uh, on the line with us, uh, who has uh, been, been drawn into this story himself. And uh, he is uh, an astronomer as well uh, from Louisiana State University. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob and Roger. Well, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Now, listen, my understanding is that, that you got involved in this story because you were able to say, hey, wait a sec, people have been looking at this star for a long time. We've got a bit of a historical record here. Indeed. Um, so, for example, all the information that had previously been published only went back to the launch of the Kepler spacecraft in 2009. And, well, uh, many of these Ideas, the proposals on the table would suggest varying things happened to the thing over the prior century. And, and I have been working with a collection of old sky photographs that are stored now at Harvard College Observatory. And um, so by going back to these old photographs, I was able to record how bright this star was for over a full century from 1890 on. And it did something that was pretty weird and actually unique, never before seen by anybody. Um, here you have this apparently normal, well, other than these Kepler dips, uh, the, 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 the star, which is, uh, well, astronomers would call it a main-sequence star. It's an ordinary adult star that's doing nothing much, except that what I found at Harvard was the thing was fading away by 20%. Uh, what we would call main-sequence stars, ordinary stars uh, do not, but should not, do this, but here it was doing it. And so this is actually um, a very useful information for going off and trying to check the, all the various ideas, the proposals, the ideas on the table for what uh, this, this star is doing. Well, to, to give it a shorthand name, let's call it Tabby's star, named after uh, Tabby Boyagium, and that's a, kind of a common name. Otherwise, it, it has a, a name. Uh, let's see, it's KIC8462852. Let's call it Tab- yeah, Tabby's we'll go with, star. Tabby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we like that. <laughs> So this this fading, what what I mean, if if it were fading at a much smaller degree, what what does that typically indicate? Well, it, it, uh, stars like that don't fade; they just don't. And so, uh, what on earth could the thing be? Well, we don't know. Um, and so, it, it, it just deepens the mystery somewhat. However, also what you can do is you can use it to address some of the ideas. You had mentioned that, well, the, the, the best of the bad lot of ideas out there was this comet idea where you have a family of comets that over one day period you have 36 super giant comets all passing in front of the star. Well, it might not be physically impossible, but it's really pretty contrived. Um, but it's the best of the bad lot of ideas out there. 
And uh, one of the things that you can get from the Harvard plates, uh, now is probably not the time to go into too much detail, but basically you can't get this Harvard dimming that I'm seeing, the fading by 20% in brightness over a century, you can't get that from a family of comets. Um, and so um, effectively what I've done is I've come up with a really pretty strong argument against the comet family idea. And so kind of what we're left with now is... Um, well, we don't have any good ideas out there. We don't know what's going on. This is a classic mystery. We don't know what's going on. I love that. Uh, so tell me this. <laughs> well, it's true because it feeds my curiosity better. Right? I mean, when I heard well, it. What about be... mine? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to know what the dumb thing is, too, right? <laughs> well, but you, you talk about how you went and looked at all these pictures. Did you also find some record of people observing something similar before Kepler that this star is fading? No, uh, before Kepler picked it up, before uh, uh, Tabby Boyajian uh, picked it up as part of the Planet Hunters group. This is classic citizen science, awesomely done, where um, you had people around the world going through, pouring through the Kepler data of the, the, the gazillion, st- well, 100,000 stars that they have, and they, they were able to recognize, hey, something weird is going on here. Um, they did a very good job. But before this was discovered um, uh, and put forth in the Tabby Boyajian paper, um, um, this is just a random 12th magnitude star just sitting there no one paid any special attention to. And so, no, we don't have any records of this star in particular other than the happenstance records that you would get at Harvard. Well, let's bring Jason right into the conversation, uh, who's uh, an associate professor at the Department of Astronomy, Astrophysics, Penn State University. Uh, Jason had been brought in originally to, to try to figure out what was going on with, with this star. Uh, Jason, your thoughts, first of all, on, on what this, this latest data is telling us and what this might suggest or, or rule out. Hi, guys. Good to be back. Um, well, it, it definitely takes all the ideas I had, all my contrived ideas, and just puts them in the trash can. <laughs> um, I mean, this uh, Bradley has it exactly right. This is a classic mystery, and it's been out there for a while now, and everyone's been racking their brains trying to figure out what it could be. And the nice thing about comets is, you know, if you get enough comets and they're big enough and they're opaque enough and they go by just the right time, well, you know, you can make a star get however dim you want in any way. It's kind of hard to disprove. Um, but uh, but now we see this totally new thing that the star was 20% brighter a hundred years ago, uh, and it's dimmer now. And, and I mean, stars don't do that, and you know, comets don't do that. So I I don't know. All my ideas are gone, and so this thing is um, uh, it, it's reopened the whole thing for you know people to try and think. All right, what else could it possibly be? We just don't know. Well, Jason, when you do try to answer that question, I mean, where do you start from? Are you trying to figure out <laughs> how big the thing has to be, how opaque it has to be? Right. So when um, so the Kepler mission, which ended a, a few years ago, it stared at this star for four years, and there were all these episodes where it got dimmer, and sometimes up to 20%, um, for a few days, and then it would go back to normal. And so something was blocking the light. And so we were working things out. Okay, how big does it have to be that's blocking the light? How fast is it moving? Because it only blocked it for a few days. You try to put everything together. It's way too big to be a planet. It's moving... Um, and there were all their indications that it can't be too close to the star, it can't be too far away from the star. We're, you know, trying to box everything in, and we're just left with, we don't know, nothing does that. We've never seen that before. But, you know, we're like, okay, there's a cold ring of material that's far from the star, and we're seeing it edge on, and we had all these contrived ideas. And then we find out that it's been getting dimmer for 100 years, and now nothing makes any, any sense anymore. 
Hey, Jason, uh, I'll, I'll tell you an idea here that hopefully can actually get this solved here on the time. Well, maybe a fast time scale if we get lucky. <laughs> maybe right now. Um, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll and actually, Tabby Boyajian. Right yeah. Well, uh, no, no, it takes new data coming down. But Tabby Boyajian <laughs> has been working on using amateur astronomers the world over to keep track on this star and alert mm-hmm. the world when more upcoming uh, dips happen. When the star fades away, the amateur astronomer of the world communicates through the American Association of Variable Star Observers, which communicates to her, and she has telescopes online, which can then go off and take spectrum during the dip. We didn't have that possibility before with the Kepler data because we only learned about it long after the dips happened. But if we can catch one of these dips coming up, we actually can get a spectrum from it. And a spectrum should be able to tell us a, a, a lot about the nature of whatever is passing in front of the star. So, for example, if we see absorption lines, well, we can get an idea of what the gaseous component is. Or if we can see how the, um, how the star reddens, well, that would be due to dust. We could actually quantify and actually prove that it actually is dust, if, if so. Um, or alternatively, if the fading is neutral in color, that might indicate a solid body doing the occulting. And so that, I think, is our best hope right now for being able to come up with um, a, a substantial new, um, th- a, 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 a new evidence coming in. It's probably Tabby's program of using the amateurs of the world to, to alert when the dip is going to happen. You go out and get a spectrum, and that should tell you the nature of the occulter. You know, Jason, I've got a lot of thoughts on what uh, Dr. Schaefer just said, but I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think. <laughs> well, no, Brad Bradley is exactly right about that. Um, um, the, the American Association of Variable Star Observers is looking at this. There's also a global network of um, professional telescopes that are looking at this. And, in fact, right before this phone call, I was emailing a postdoc of mine. We're working on the script to reduce those data and set up an alert. And as soon as the star starts getting dimmer again, uh, we have a program with the Swift Space Telescope, and we're going to swing that sucker around as fast as we can in a matter of minutes, maybe, uh, to start studying the star and see what's doing that. And and that that's absolutely right. That's exactly what we're going to do. And if we see that it gets much fainter at ultraviolet wavelengths, then infrared wavelengths or something like that, then we'll know, okay, that looks like it's dust. So there's dust in the way. What else is going on? And if all the colors get dimmer evenly, then that means it's some kind of solid object, some sort of giant star-sized solid object passing in front of the star. And then we're back to having not very many uh, good ideas. That's okay. pretty much what I was going Well, there's the, the maybe the most intriguing idea, which is maybe the one that, that I guess people like both of you are are maybe least reluctant to, to speculate on. But I mean, if, if we're starting to entertain at some point the notion that it could possibly be something that was put there, something that was constructed, how would we even begin right. to, to assess that? Well, that, that one's hard. Um, if we, so one of the things that we're doing is uh, I'm working with, with radio astronomers, and there are other radio astronomers have done this as well, to uh, point radio telescopes and try and see if there might be any artificial signals coming. That would do it, right? I mean, if there's a signal coming from that star, radio waves, some sort of, you know, the, the, the traffic and weather on some planet and star far away, that would do it. Then we would know, okay, that's what's going on. But short of that, all you can really do is rule out other things, because, you know, how do you know? I think seeing that whatever's blocking the light blocks all wavelengths of light, that would mean it's a solid object, and that That'd be hard to explain, and that might move us along that road towards rolling out every possible explanation. But you know, 
you can't think of everything. It could just be something we haven't thought of yet. So unfortunately, short of getting radio signals, I can't think of many tests you could do to show that it was alien megastructure. Yeah. You can just show it's not everything else you thought of. Bradley, how do you come at it? Um, I, I quite agree, t totally here, sure. Um, uh, we have to uh, be careful not to reject the extreme speculation just because they're so extreme. Um, because after all, here we have a mysterious thing, and, and, and we, we, we clearly aren't uh, explaining it with, with ordinary mechanisms. And so casting around is a good thing to do, um, because that's what turns science into science. You actually look and check possibilities. And, and well, here's a possibility that them could, should be checked. You've got to be careful, though. Uh, this is just like ordinary logic, though. Um, um, whenever you have an extraordinary claim, you need more than ordinary evidence. Um, and so, for example, if I was claiming um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 58 years old, uh, all you'd do is you'd, you'd, all, the only evidence you'd need to check that would be my driver's license. If I was claiming I was a 1,055 <laughs> years old, you'd need a lot more than a driver's license or, or a birth certificate. Um, so similarly here, you can't get much more extraordinary of a claim than alien superstructure, megastructures. And so we're gonna, before you actually should be a believer, you really got to uh, uh, check out all the other possibilities and you need extraordinary evidence. Uh, nevertheless, we have to look, and that's what science does. Is we go off and we look and we check out these things, and that's what we'll do. And we don't have the answer right now. Oh, well, I'd, I'd like to. We all would. But we don't. But um, uh, keep tuned. Yeah. Well, you know, I submit uh, the fact that when Jason Wright brought it up, there was some uh, peculiar interference on his cellular phone. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. So that's how I know that we're dealing with uh, some extraterrestrial superstructure out there. Just saying. Just putting it out there, guys. Well, what's fascinating is that, uh, you know, as you say, there's a lot of interest in this. There are a lot of different ways to, to try to come at this. And, and I mean, it's... It's a mystery. Putting aside the speculation, it's just it's cool that there's this mystery and people want to know. There's there's Indeed. a desire to solve this. It's, it's like a lot of mystery where we've rejected all possible solutions. Well, hang on a sec. Sorry, uh, Jason, what were you saying? Well, I was saying that the, the the speculation has gotten the object a lot of attention. In fact, when it was yeah. first published, mm -hmm. you know, not many people seem to notice. And you know, when we pointed out just how weird this is, we're like, no, wait, this isn't just a little bit weird. This is totally off the charts yeah, weird. Indeed. You know, and we said aliens. Then all of a sudden, everyone started paying attention. And so now I think you know we've got a lot of people working on a really fun mystery. For sure, Bradley. Your final thoughts. I want to know what causes it, and we're working. <laughs> cool, good stuff. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today, and go Tigers and go Nittany Lions. Thank you. <laughs> well, there you go. Well That's played. Okay. All right, Bradley Schaefer, <laughs> uh, Louisiana State University, and uh, Jason Wright uh, from Penn State University, uh, both in their respective departments uh, of astronomy and astrophysics. Uh, so there you go. Aliens. Just, you know, as soon as we turn those SETI satellites and we'll hear them and they'll be like, you know, stop staring at our megastructure, then we'll know. But by then we'll have been staring at them for a really long time. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.